Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books Network. I am your host, Stephen Sakevich. In this episode, I will be speaking with noted historian Robert Kershaw about his book, Dukeren 1940, The German View of Dunkirk, published by Osprey Publishing in 2022. Robert Kershaw is a well-established historian on the Second World War. A graduate of Reading University, he is also a veteran of the British Army. He also spent time with the modern German military as an advisor and instructor. Uh, Robert Kershaw, uh, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you. Now, we usually like to begin our uh, interviews by asking our guests, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and what's the backstory behind writing this book? Um, I looked at this as a possible battlefield tour when I was at the NATO headquarters in Brussels. And I was tasked to come up with the German version of the Dunkirk in, uh, evacuation uh, because I could speak and read German. Sorry, that's my guest speaker there, just moving off. But, and so I looked at the ground and had a few questions that I needed to answer and agreed to go ahead with it if they could provide me with all the uh, post-action combat reports and so on and so forth, which they did. I managed to get the core and division reports, and I also got a number of personal accounts as well. And the question I needed to ask was that having walked the ground, I could I was trying to work out how you would get an armoured thrust to get into Dunkirk. And having driven all around the area, I quickly came to the conclusion that it just was not possible at all. Because from whichever direction you um, head for Dunkirk, um, from the uh, south, uh, uh, east or west, you have to cross a minimum of between uh, five to seven canals. And in addition, the whole area is herringbone with drainage ditches and, and low-lying ground. So it, it would have been an absolute impossibility. And as I was reading all the various um, personal accounts, in particular the British ones initially, um, nowhere was there ever a reference by a veteran of any danger of a panzer attack or tanks uh, entering the beach area which I wasn't surprised at all. So I then went into the whole thing in some depth and looked at the documents and eventually came up with the book. Um, fortunately, I hadn't read a great deal around it, so I had a completely open mind and I sort of realised that a lot of what is being said, in particular on the recent TV documentaries and so on and so forth about Dunkirk, uh, especially the Panzer Port Order, didn't seem to gel at all uh, with the information I was getting out of the d German documents. And then, obviously, I realised that people hadn't really dipped into this, this information at all and were coming up with alternative uh, conclusions. Now, you mentioned briefly uh, some of the sources were you able to uh, consult. Uh, can you go into more in depth, like what archives did you have to look through in order to research for this book. Well, I was, I was very fortunate in, in that initially the ministry provided me with the um, post-combat reports 
of all the corps that had taken part. And this was the level we were dealing with, that and division level. I got the division uh, reports as well. And in areas where I wasn't certain um, about the accuracy or um, authenticity of what was being said, uh, I tried to um, compare that with some of the uh, personal accounts that were published in uh, 1941, too, in uh, Germany. Um, these are few and far between, so they're, they're quite rare. I mean, the main reason for this is that, for example, uh, the eight infantry divisions that uh, wrong 10 infantry divisions that encircled uh, Dunkirk, uh, they all uh, were annihilated eventually on the Eastern Front. And very few of these infanteers that have fought in 1940 were around post-war uh, to comment on what had happened at Dunkirk, which was regarded really as a, a signpost on the way to Paris, uh, not a particularly significant um, action. So let's start off with uh, what is the strategic situation looking like for the Germans at the beginning of 1940? They just conquered uh, Poland and they're about ready to get involved in Scandinavia. But of course, the main action is Hitler's planning his assault on France and the Low Countries. What's the situation looking like from the German perspective at this time? Um, Hitler had identified, interestingly, um, a weak point on the um, Allied defensive network um, defending most of the approaches into France and the Low Countries, uh, in particular that area in the Ardennes. And it was also noted that the forces defending that area uh, were not particularly their best. And the Germans had, during the campaign in Poland, taken considerable risk by only leaving about 40 uh, divisions or so in the West and attacking Poland with just over 100, I think it was. And of course, all those forces were then redirected uh, for hopefully a swift campaign in the West. The problem was that in the winter of 40-41, which was a particularly severe winter, uh, when the Germans were considering um, uh, attacking, uh, they inadvertently lo um, lost the plan in that a staff officer uh, force-landed uh, with a German aircraft on the wrong side of the frontier and the Allies captured the entire um, German uh, offensive plan. And so it had to change. Um, so what was looking very much like the Schlieffen plan of 1914 was adapted so that it came from an entirely different direction, which, as we know, um, it came through the Ardennes and took advantage of that weak spot that, that actually Hitler himself had, had actually identified. Yeah, there was that debate between the what you call the, it was almost like a reworking of the Schlieffen plan, but Hitler, of course, was thinking, probably thinking from his own one experience, like, well, that didn't work in 1914, why is it going to work in 1940? And then uh, von Manstein came up with the uh, sickle, uh, the sickle cut uh, attack, so Hitler adopted that. How did the Wehrmacht uh, train and prepare for the offensive once, you know, uh, Manstein's uh, sickle cut 
plan was adopted? Well, the sickle cut plan was adopted, but um, I think it was regarded as being very creative by the uh, senior German generals, whose background was primarily 1418. And they'd not really made the, uh, uh, if you like, the um, creative jump from static warfare to mobile warfare. And so they were slightly dubious as to whether it would work as well as it did in the event. And I think much of the campaign was about Hitler, in fact, losing control of the momentum of Blitzkrieg um, because it moved so much faster than they had actually anticipated. And the other um, major uh, influence was that in during the Polish campaign, although it was labeled Blitzkrieg by, I think it was the American Time magazine, he came up with the first um, expression, uh, which meant really um, a penetration achieving great destruction. Um, in in the event, um, when 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 it actually um, got moving, the Germans were absolutely stunned at the success they were getting. And the reason for the success is that the intermediate level of command, the core commanders, were pressing on um, and not paying much attention to their flanks and utilizing the shock impact of this penetration in the Ardennes. And uh, this, this was running concurrently with the uh, belief by the senior uh, military hierarchy advising Hitler that maybe they were going too fast. And the problem was that the infantry, and we tend to forget that the vast um, bulk of the German army was uh, still infantry and horse uh, born and horse drawn. And of the 120 or 30, 130 divisions that attacked in the West, only about 22 were uh, mobile or panzer, uh, which is only a small part of the force. And this was, of course, the tip of the spear, if you like, the vanguard. And it was the infantry um, that were really dictating the pace because um, although the panzer forces were penetrating in great depth, the reason they got away with it was because um, they were appearing totally unexpected in the rear areas. And if the Allies had coalesced at any stage and encircled them, that, that could have been in, uh, incredibly serious. And the real firepower to destroy the units that would be surrounded uh, came from the uh, infantry corps um, and they were horse-drawn uh, artillery and way behind the Panzer vanguards. So it was a huge risk. I mean, for example, by the time Guderian had reached the coast, which was totally unexpected, um, he had three... Uh, Panzer divisions in his corps, and he said one against Boulogne, another against uh, uh, Calais, and another against Dunkirk itself. None of those divisions uh, was sufficient to, for the task it was set, and Boulogne was captured after a stiff fight, um, Calais after an even stiffer fight, and yet the uh, first Panzer division that launched against um, Dunkirk 
was um, fought off by the French. And that is the only recorded uh, serious uh, panzer uh, attack against the Dunkirk perimeter, which came in from the West. And it was stopped dead um, before the canal system. Now, also, uh, you talk a lot about uh, von Bach's uh, Army Group B, which was facing the Netherlands. That was kind of the northern thrust that was supposed to drive, drive into the Netherlands and then lure the French northward so they could be encircled by uh, the Panzers coming out of the Ardennes. How did von Bach's uh, Army Group B uh, uh, operate during the early stages of the campaign? Uh, it made very good progress. Um, there is a tendency to believe that von Bock's Army Group B was a feint and that the real power of the offensive was coming from the um, Panzer flanking move. And th there is a degree of truth in that, but really, when you look at the numbers of divisions involved, um, you're looking at a twin-track offensive uh, with more weight uh, on, on the left, if, if you like, uh, the, the, the Panzer element. And uh, von Bock actually kept the momentum going at infantry speed uh, through Belgium and uh, entered um, France. But it, it wasn't easy, and they suffered considerable uh, casualties in so doing. Um, what, what is interesting is that um, one of the um, German divisions that uh, was in the final um, assault to uh, capture Dunker, the division commander was um, asked to uh, recall uh, which of his opponents he thought were the most serious, and he considered and thought that uh, they were all pretty well of a muchness, or was, in other words, not good enough for the um, uh, German infantry, but the ones that gave him the most trouble were the Belgians, which was um, quite surprising. Yeah, and then uh, just for some of our listeners who might not be familiar, there was Army Group uh, B by von Bach in the, the north facing the Netherlands. There was uh, Army Group A by von Lunch, commanded by von Rundstedt in Belgium and the Ardennes. And then there was Army Group C that was facing the Maginot line, yes. which did not do too much action because they were mostly just just keep the Maginot line preoccupied and we'll do we'll try to flank them uh, around. Now, you mentioned the Belgians, and one major element that gets uh, mentioned a lot is the role that the paratroopers, the Bolshevikers, uh, played, because this was uh, one of the first major airborne operations, particularly uh, Fort uh, Ebel and Now, uh, uh, can you talk about that, like what impact that had on the campaign? Yes, I mean, it goes back to what I said before, that th this was really a twin-track uh, offensive, and the airborne element was a total surprise to the Allies. Um, the Dutch um, idea to defend the Netherlands was the so-called Fortress Holland concept, which was that the Dutch army would retire behind its canals and river lines and hold a hedgehog position and repel the invaders by using the canals and the river systems as a form of moat. But of course, unexpectedly, um, there were there were two division size um, formations that simply flew over uh, the canal complex and landed in the midst of the uh, Dutch defensive system, which collapsed um, within days. 
primarily because it was unable to function um, with such large units already um, threatening the capital uh, and, and in their rear. Um, that gave sufficient impetus for von Boch to keep the momentum moving, despite the fact that he had the cream and the main strength of the Allied armies being directed against him. And the Allied plan was to advance uh, eastward uh, and drive into Germany as soon as uh, the war began, uh, which the Germans welcomed because um, that massive movement to the east um, freed up their panzer uh, divisions to come in along the um, flank, uh, having uh, overwhelmed the French Ninth Army. And pretty soon, the Allies were in a powerless position. Now, one issue you do talk about is the use of preventative by German soldiers. And I know in the media, this tends to get sensationalized. But how was this drug used by German soldiers uh, during this early stage of the war? And they used it simply to stay awake. Um, it, its use was widespread. And the problem with it was that, like any drug, um, once you've taken a particularly heavy dose, you get an enormous hangover at the end of it. So you're good for a certain amount of time. And then after that time, you're in a, um, a pretty desperate state. Um, I think I quoted some examples in the book of um, senior officers who are taking this drug, um, some suffering heart attacks and, and perishing as a, 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 as a result of the um, strain, if you like, that they put themselves under by, by taking these drugs. I think recent TV documentaries sort of talk about it as a wonder drug and all the rest. Um, when you look, delve into the issue and the research, you discover, for example, although medical students were taking this um, prior to the war to improve their performance in exams, and it had the opposite effect because it slowed their thinking um, as they became increasingly tired. So its, its use was of benefit to the panzers initially. Uh, the drivers were taking it to keep themselves going, but... Um, if there had been a, um, a tactically successful defence, um, the impact of the drug would have rebounded. Uh, it's a double-edged weapon uh, on the Germans. Now, at this early stage in the campaign, did Dunkirk have any real significance for the Allies uh, at this stage? This is before they get trapped at Dunkirk. Was it being used or have any significance uh, for them? I remember you mentioned this. In the yeah, it it was really a reinforcement head. Um, it's one of the ports where um, uh, British soldiers were coming over from the UK mainland uh, uh, to France. And it was also a very important resupply hub. And it was also a naval headquarters um, for the French. And it was also very well defended. Um, for the advent of the European Union and all the rest of it, there were the, the French actually defended the frontier between France and Belgium, which um, lay to the um, east of Dunkirk itself, 
where there was a, a, a bunker system already established to actually uh, check any aggressor uh, coming from that direction, uh, which was, of course, utilised eventually in the sort of final um, uh, fighting around the Dunkirk perimeter. So even before this campaign, it still had like uh, significance to the French. To the French. Yes. I, I mean, for example, I think I quote the case of, uh, I think it was a French soldier who marries a, 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 a Belgian uh, lady. And um, because of the bureaucracy um, that both countries exercise along that frontier, uh, the marriage had to be conducted right on the um, frontier itself, uh, one leg in uh, France and one leg in Belgium, apparently, to legalize it. Now, we move from the actual combat to the head to the Wehrmacht headquarters. And, of course, Hitler is ch trying to take control of this. He has his own relationship with his generals and the general staff. Uh, what is kind of the relationship uh, between Hitler and the German high command during the, the 1940 uh, campaign? Um, the senior military was divided into two camps, in a sense. There was Oberkommando der Wehrmacht, uh, which is was Hitler, the supreme headquarters, uh, where Hitler was established. And then there's Oberkommando des Heeres, OKH, uh, which was the army by command. And OKW is um, Army, Navy, Air Force. OKH is Army. This is predominantly an Army land operation. And much of the staff work for the actual invasion uh, was conducted by an OKH. But that also had to be um, uh signed off by OKW, which is the Supreme Headquarters. And soon, the uh, Supreme Commander of the Army, von Brautich, um, started to get very nervous about the interface, growing interface, uh, between the Panzer Vanguard and uh, the marching infantry, as did other senior German generals. And there were a number of checks um, brought upon the Panzer Vanguard to slow them up. Uh, for example, Guderian, I think after having crossed the Stone River, um, thought he was going to get a pat on the back from von Kluger for advancing so well. And actually, he, he was given a telling off for overstepping the mark and advancing too far, thereby making the his Panzer uh, Vanguard um, vulnerable, whereas Kuderian realized that the resistance was rapidly caving in front of him and uh, wanted to push on. And at this stage, he tendered his resignation, which was unexpected, to von Kluger. And the whole thing had to be um, sorted about, out by von Rundstedt, the uh, uh, Army Group A commander, who told Kuderian to carry on. Um, and also told von Kluger to keep an eye on him. So there were these sort of tensions already. And then um, when um, uh, Darien reached Amiens, he asked for permission to conduct a reconnaissance to the coast, whereas in reality what he wanted to do was push a battalion to the coast, 
which he did so. And this was happening throughout the campaign, that the Panzer Vanguard, realizing the um, weakness of the resistance they were encountering, felt that they should drive on and take the risk. And in the event, that proved to be um, the um, uh, architect, basic architecture for the future, future victory. But the big problem with that was that when they reached the coast, uh, there wasn't a plan because their rapid arrival was totally unexpected. So you've got the Panzers to the south, having already reached the coast, um, von Bock still some distance to go across the Low Countries, and interestingly, the bulk of the Allied armies are still well to the east, and if the Panzers had managed to punch northward, they could have been, there would have been a huge encirclement battle, and, they, and the British expeditionary force would not have been able to get away. Yeah, and uh, what was the common feeling among the ordinary German soldiers? You were able, through some of your research, able to cite a lot of like the letters, and memoirs, yeah, whatnot. What was the common feeling among the the rank and file? Well, the the Panzerhaltorder was obviously very important, um, but it, it wasn't regarded as such by the German soldiers at the time in the field. It's more of um, uh, an armchair general um, development uh, post-war. And many of the senior German generals um, preferred to blame Hitler uh, for enabling the British Expeditionary Force to get away, as distinct from, um, well, because he it was easier to blame him because by that time he was already dead. And the um, decision to halt appeared bizarre. But for the German soldiers who've been on the go now for nearly two weeks, they were exhausted. And in particular, the Panzer Vanguard needed to resupply and the infantry needed to catch up. So it wasn't Hitler's idea to institute the halt order. It was von Rundstedt, the army group commander's uh, decision to halt the panzers to enable the infantry to catch up. And when you look at what I did was examine the various units all the way along the panzer line to the south to see if there was any evidence that here was an opportunity being missed and so on and so forth. And there's not a whisper of this. There is more relief. And um, thank God we're, we, we've been given a chance to rest and uh, recuperate, resupply and all the rest, and certainly no, not a whisper of, you know, uh, of blame even after the event that, that, that Hitler was responsible. Much of that stuff came at the end of the war. Yeah, and now, mentioned how German soldiers uh, gave impressions of the Belgians earlier. What was the common uh, perceptions of the, the Allied soldiers, their Allied counterparts overall? And I'd be very interested, like, what was their impression of the British because Hitler and a lot of the Nazi ideology kind of glorified the British as, you know, fellow Germanic uh, brethren who were supposed to be allies. Hitler actually wanted an alliance with Britain. He didn't want to fight a war with them. But I'd be very interested in hearing how did the Germans view their allied counterparts. The the guy in OKH who was responsible for the uh, assessment of the enemy was an Albers Liss, 
and he drew up uh, the enemy forces um, paragraphs of the orders, and he assessed, um, for example, the Belgians as being potentially very weak uh, because they were divided by the um, problem they've got today even uh, between the Flemings and the Walloons, and that they were defensive and would fight according to French principles. The French were regarded as being better in France, in defence, but very much World War I um, indoctrinated, uh, poorly trained, although their best units would be encountered uh, in northwest France, which was true, but they were the ones that were being, um, uh, which had moted uh, eastward uh, when the war began and were subsequently cut off. And their view of the British is quite interesting in that they regarded British officers as being generally steadfastly pretty poor, but the NCOs were extremely good and they were reckoned to be probably a force to be reckoned with because they were veterans. Many of these soldiers were veterans of wars um, in the empire, um, the uh, local uh, irregular uh, fights that they'd had um, to maintain order in parts of the British Empire uh, prior to, uh, to this war. So they were seen to um, be uh, experienced and would probably give a good account of themselves. Liss, interestingly enough, had done was an artillery officer and had done an exchange with the Royal Artillery um, at Lark Hill uh, for a season. So he was even in a position to assess the territorial army, uh, which he assessed as being um, fairly poor. and um, But he had a uh, some respect uh, for the professionalism of the British Army because he'd spent some time with it. Now, with the Allies uh, trapped at Dunkirk because the Panzers had reached the coast, how did the German High Command assess the situation? Did they feel like they needed to eliminate the pocket or should they press on? Uh, you mentioned that they needed the infantry to catch up. How did they overall assess that situation? Well, I think both the soldiers and the high command's view was, having viewed all the destruction of enemy equipment as they approached Dunkirk and the precipitate retreat of the Allied armies, that they had this victory already in the bag. And so they were already looking beyond this victory to the, the more important strategic one, which was to take uh, the entire French metropolitan area out of the war. Um, because having reached the coast, uh, they'd split the uh, French forces in two, really. There were still strong forces to the south uh, of the River Somme, even though the major uh, quality units were to the north, and these were the ones that the uh, Germans had in their grasp. So in many ways, it, there was um, an anxious feeling that they needed to bother too much with these units, which were in the main surrendering in any case, and they should turn their attention to Plan Rort, which was the occupation of the rest of France. And there were already withdrawals from the line of panzer and motorized units in preparation for that, way before the Dunkirk um, perimeter 
was had been effectively um, sanitized. And it took a long time before the Germans uh, realized that they needed to coordinate their forces in such a way as to enable the bulk of them to withdraw for the next part of the campaign and at the same time force the units they had trapped to surrender. Um, one of the problems for the Germans is that they are, were, and still are, a land-based um, military power. And they had very little comprehension of the ability of the Royal Navy to pull off such a, an evacuation as they did because they, the Germans didn't have a sizable Kriegsmarine Navy and this was beyond their comprehension. They thought that the Brits would be starved into surrender and they really didn't think it was possible to move such a large number of men by sea off the beaches. And so they were complacent, uh, as were the German soldiers. So if you imagine you've survived the advance across the Low Countries, um, the British and the remaining French are bottled up in the uh, Dunkirk perimeter. The Belgians have surrendered. Are, are you going to risk your life at this point? I mean, there's going to be a ceasefire soon. There'll be an armistice. Do I want to die in the last few weeks in the war? And the answer to that is no, they don't. So therefore, momentum was completely lost um, and attention was being um, really shifting to the River Somme and the advance to the south. Now, in addition, there was a problem that as the infantry units came up, they had to replace the panzer units that had already corralled um, the British and French into the Dunkirk perimeter. That is in the south, um, in the north, von Bock's um, infantry forces were obviously uh, enclosing the area uh, to the east. Now, what that meant was that because of the size of the Dunkirk perimeter, you couldn't really bring considerable combat power against it because there was simply not enough room. And at the same time, you've got this confusion of motorized units withdrawing in contact being replaced by the infantry, and there's not even enough room around the perimeter to park vehicles uh, or position artillery uh, because the area had been flooded uh, to increase the uh, moat potential of the canal and, and natural drainage system. And there wasn't even enough room to deploy forces. So, for example, of the 10 German divisions uh, surrounding the perimeter, only five could actually exercise any combat power. The other five were waiting behind the floodwaters and couldn't get to grips uh, with their adversary. So, in fact, what you've got is this huge confusion of units arriving, units withdrawing, lack of command and control. And this lasted for about a week until von Kufler, the commander of the 18th Army was given the task of using these 10 divisions uh, to reduce the Dunkirk perimeter. And they didn't really get going on that until the end of May, which was coincidental with the cream of the British Army being withdrawn. Because up until this time, you've got all the logistic and rear units being taken off by sea first. 
Yeah, when the combat uh, divisions come into the uh, perimeter, these are the ones the Germans really want to capture because this is the future seed corn of a British army. Now, these are the combat troops, those men who had fought in the empire and all the rest of it, and that opportunity was lost uh, in this maelstrom of uh, administrative confusion when the Germans really failed to uh, exercise sufficient combat power against the perimeter to collapse it. So it sounds like at this point the Germans need some time to kind of regroup in order to be able to even uh, effectively advance on the Dunkirk pocket. Is this kind of the some of the contributing factors to the whole orders, first from Rundstedt and then later on from Hitler? It was initially. Uh, what you've got to bear in mind is that of the nine days of the uh, Dunkirk evacuation, only one of them were taken up by the Panzer Halt order. So what happened was essentially after the uh, Halt order. I think the problem with the Halt order was less that they could have captured Dunkirk, more that if they'd been given free reign, they would have prevented more units reaching the coast than they did. Uh, because at the time of the Halt order, when it was first instituted on the 28th of May, you've got to sort of recognize that the 1st Panzer Division had already been fought back uh, when it attacked the uh, west side of the Dunkirk perimeter, and um, the uh, uh, others were not going to be able to penetrate and, and get through. So uh, how did the German High Command assess the situation once they found out about the mass evacuation that was going on in Dunkirk? Um, the Luftwaffe were picking up indications that this was going on well before the German High Command uh, looked at it and appreciate and, and included it in their command appreciation. And the reason for this is um, some 30 odd divisions had been taken out already from the Allied or, 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 or wrong, some 50 or just under 60 had been taken out already by the Germans. So the real focus is on destroying the rest of the French army south of the Somme. And if 10 British divisions get away across the sea, so what? They've left all their equipment behind anyway. And when they get back to the UK mainland, they're going to surrender, aren't they? And this, this is what is in their mind. They wanted to, the Germans wanted to shift the focus of their combat power eastward, uh, wrong, eastern to the south, to take the rest of metropolitan France, uh, which was of lesser importance than 10 British divisions who probably surrender when they get back to England in any case, because of the complete political hopelessness uh, of, of their situation. Now, the early uh, Waffen SS also played a role at uh, Dunkirk, and even in a very infamous uh, way. Can you explain this to our listeners? Yeah, I mean, the, the Waffen-SS in the 1940 French campaign were nothing like the um, elite effective force that they were to become during the Russian campaign. And thus far in the war, they'd not performed well. In Poland, um, the SS operated as a regimental group, and they had to be rescued by the um, Wehrmacht, the regular army, because they got themselves into trouble. Um, by the time we get to the French campaign, 
um, many uh, the SS formations have been expanded. Um, the Botenkopf, uh, for example, had been reinforced by simply taking on concentration camp guards and drafting them into combat units. Now, these men were not used to being shot back at when they had, for example, intimidated the Jews and kept them in concentration camps. And when they arrived on the field of battle, they found this was an entirely different um, setup. Um, and they were rather dismayed at the number of casualties they began to have as they attempted to fight against um, the British, having got through the low countries with fairly low casualties. Um, when you look at the uh, return of the um, SS formations going through Holland, they're losing about half a dozen or so killed per day. Um, when they get to the area of the Dunkirk perimeter, uh, these figures are going up to uh, a couple of dozen a day. And they are rather dismayed at the losses they're incurring. And so the atrocities that occurred uh, in, in mainly two locations, Vermont uh, just outside um, the uh, Dunkirk perimeter and, and another, they um, were really vengeful uh, reprisals because they'd either lost uh, one of their um, much-loved commanders or they were smarting about the uh, enormous casualties that they suffered. And they suffered these casualties because of um, practical incompetence primarily. And so the SS that emerged uh, the following year, beginning in the Balkans, where they achieved some considerable success in Yugoslavia, and then with the expanded formations uh, fighting their way um, across Russia, by the time of Smolensk, um, they, their, their contribution was being welcomed rather than criticised by the regular army. In France, they were criticised uh, because they impinged the honour of the regular army with these atrocities, uh, the killings of prisoners and so on. So in your assessment, was Dunkirk truly a missed opportunity for the Germans to finish off the, the British and possibly end the war? as is often argued? Yes. Um, uh, to a certain extent, it, uh, I'm not a great believer in these might have been scenarios um, in history, but there are, I think, the key development uh, at Dunkirk was the fact that over a three-day period, toward the end of May and the beginning of June, the cream of the British Army, its combat element, managed to evacuate. That could have been prevented, I believe, because um, German artillery was already in range of the beaches by this time, and they still got them off. And the Luftwaffe, uh, primarily for reasons of weather, but also because of the difficulty of uh, transiting from the Reich, quite often with their bomber formations, only the Spukers and fighters were anywhere near the Dunkirk perimeter. Uh, Goering, as we know, failed in his promise to Hitler to uh, annihilate the British expeditionary force before he could lead. So all those sort of factors, in particular, the the 
the fact that the British army saved future seed corn, I believe that more than any other, um, meant that Britain could stay in the war. Because if the entire British expeditionary force had surrendered, then he could have been held hostage for political negotiations. And we don't know really whether Churchill would have been strong enough to uh, ignore that. Um, in the crisis deliberations, he was having at cabinet level um, at the time of the uh, Dunkirk evacuation. Now, you do talk about in the book how hard it is, actually, how difficult it is for historians to try to make this uh, assessment. What kind of factors uh, contribute to this difficulty of assessing whether or not it was truly a missed opportunity? Well, I, th I think it's normally the victors that write the history. And the first important history that came out of the Second World War was Winston Churchill's history of the Second World War. And obviously, um, he's blowing his own trumpet um, throughout these bestseller um, volumes. And the other factor is that so few of the Germans who fought there were to survive the war. Um, because um, probably by 1940, the winter of 1941 to 42, the majority of the uh, German soldiers who had fought in France had probably perished um, on the Eastern Front. And certainly by the um, collapse of Army Group Center in 1944, when most of the original Dunkirk um, divisions were sucked into captivity by the Russian army, um, all that personal comment was gone. German senior officers tend to survive, as is the case uh, in the history of war. And they made mistakes. And um, so they have got their own particular viewpoint to put across. And they would tend to blame Hitler for anything that went wrong. And that is why I believe the Dunkirk, um, if you like, all the aspects of the Dunkirk story a bit of a myth um, have lasted so long as they had. Now, what significance did Dunkirk have at the time for the Germans? Did they view this as very significant that the British were able to be evacuated? Or, as you said, they just had bigger fish uh, to deal with, namely finishing off France when they had the opportunity? When you, when you read the personal accounts, um, it, it's pretty small fry. There's only 10 divisions involved here, and only six of those were really... Um, truly combat divisions. Three of them were, were sort of uh, um, came out as pioneers, laborers uh, to assist in digging trenches. And so the average German view was so what? Um, they will surrender. Their position is hopeless. And so it tended to be little more than a signpost on the, on the way to Paris. Paris is the real goal. Take the French capital and the rest of the French metropolitan area and that was the goal which they achieved and the equivalent would be um, to us today if China emerged victorious in a war against the United States there would be that sort of shock nobody ever thought that France could be overcome um, after all there'd been a world war where she'd been under pressure for four long years and yet she'd fallen in about four weeks it, it, the shock was tangible. So what's the overall legacy of Dunkirk on the course of World War II in, in your view? Well, 
we make uh, uh, the British are very good at um, making a heroic um, episode from a total disastrous failure. Um, we've got the Battle of Arnhem as another example. Um, it says a lot for the British character, and it was certainly a morale-boosting achievement to have saved the army, and it was a brilliant piece of counter-propaganda by the British government to extol the achievement of Dunkirk, which, in fact, was a total catastrophe where we'd barely got back to the UK mainland with the bulk of our army. Yeah, so that message... That, we snatched victory out of the door, jaws of defeat. Yeah, that was clearly the message that was given in uh, Christopher Nolan's uh, recent film on uh, yeah. Dunkirk, where they're almost about to be finished off, but then they're like, nope, we will continue the fight yeah. and we will yeah. prevail. But of course... Stirring, stirring patriotic music and all the rest, yeah. Yeah, but at the time, it's almost like, well, <laughs> how are we going to fight on now? This has been a very fascinating discussion. Do you have any final thoughts, maybe touch on anything in the book that we didn't get to in the in the interview? No, I I I, I, I think I think we pretty well um covered it all really, apart from I suppose um one of the surprising aspects for me writing the book was the achievement of the Belgians, because everybody had always said, you know, the Belgians were pretty useless and they had, in fact, stabbed the Brits in the back because they had surrendered at the height of the, uh, or just before the Dunkirk evacuation, uh, really got underway. But the Belgians, it is clear from reading the German accounts, gave the Germans a very hard time. Uh, they never gave up until the end. They always had to retreat because it was the French, uh, it was the British falling back on their right who had no choice but to fall back because of the French um, defeat of the Ninth Army uh, along the Somme. And so the poor old Belgians came out of it with, with some pretty bad press, whereas the post-combat reports from German formations clearly show they, 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 they were a headache and they fought well, as well as the other two nations. Well, we always like to end our interviews by asking our guests, uh, what are you working on now? Huh. Yeah, I'm, I, I've just finished a um, a book, uh, which will be out probably within a year, on I've identified a particular hilltop in Crete um, that dominated Malame Airfield uh, on the island of Crete, and you can uh, really... Um, extrapolate that the loss of that particular hill, which is Hill Point One Zero Seven, determined the outcome of the entire campaign. So what I've done is I'm looking at the capture of that one hill from the perspective of the decision makers and decision takers that influence the outcome of the battle. Now that's the Battle of Crete in uh, forty-one, correct? That's correct. The German airborne invasion, yes. Well, maybe when you uh, finish that, we can have you back on the podcast. Yeah, yeah, that's quite possible. Uh, Robert Kershaw, uh, well, thank you for joining us on the uh, New Books Network. You're welcome. Many thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of the New Books Network. I am your host, Stephen Sakevich. Until next time.